Welcome to Material World, where we discover the stories behind all the things you're spending your money on. We're your hosts. I'm Jenny Kaplan, and I write about all the things you drink and smoke for Bloomberg News. And I'm Lindsay Rupp. I write about retail for Bloomberg. Lindsay, I need to talk to you about something. I'm spending more and more of my time, energy, and money focused on fitness. I know. I've got a similar problem. I was running on the treadmill this morning at the gym thinking about all the money I'm spending on this. I mean, I I buy clothes and I pay for this gym membership and I buy these fitness trackers. I'm constantly shelling out money to try to get fitter. Yeah, we even had an office-wide fitness competition recently. People got so into it. I opted out. One estimate puts the global market for all that stuff I was talking about buying at about a half a trillion dollars. Meanwhile, we're also seeing historic obesity rates in this country. According to a Journal of the American Medical Association study released in 2015, 75% of men and 67% of women ages 25 and older were overweight or obese in the U.S. as of 2012. 20 years ago, it was just 63% of men and 55% of women. What's happening here? How did we as a society get this split personality? What's causing this fitness obsession? Well, I think there are a couple things that happened over the last, call it 20, 25 years. I think, and and to me, it comes down to kind of generation and gender in a lot of ways. That's Jason Kelly. He's our New York bureau chief, and he recently wrote a book about the business of fitness called Sweat Equity, Inside the New Economy of Mind and Body. Generationally, I think baby boomers in many ways kicked off this trend. If you go back, sort of way back to Richard Simmons. I know what you want to do now. Walk with me. Walk up front. Then Jane Fonda. The ultimate workout. You should have your running shoes on so we can go right into aerobics without stopping. And don't forget. The kind of rise in video workouts. And and also you start to see the proliferation of, of gyms back then. But importantly, those baby boomers had millennials, and they raised millennials in a way that really much more emphasized a healthier lifestyle, that was much more sort of holistic in the in the classic sense of eating better, getting out and and moving around, and and just being sort of a more fit person. So that's the generational piece. The gender piece is really that as Title IX, which you know sort of legislated equality for for girls and women and young women, you know, as that really sort of played through the system, you had a whole generation of women who played sports growing up. And once they played sports growing up, it wasn't like they were going to graduate from college and be like, yeah, that was cool when I was fit and now I'm not going to be anymore. Um, so and and women, as you as you guys know, from from all your great work, control, you know, somewhere upwards of 70 percent of household spending. So when you're when you have that mindset and you're in charge of spending money, you're going to spend money on different things. So according to Jason, it sounds like baby boomers passed their quest for fitness down to their millennial children. That makes sense from my personal experience. I'm a millennial and my baby boomer parents definitely passed on a focus on well-being. Right. I mean, you were talking just the other day about your dad's latest fitness obsession. So we thought it'd be a good idea to call Jenny's dad, Randall Kaplan, to talk to him a little bit about his fitness journey. Hey, 
I would say in the last 10 years, as technology's improved, um, we've kind of jumped on the bandwagon, whereas we still do personal training, which helps force us to, to get our exercise. Um, we also have um, bought exercise equipment, uh, like uh, treadmills and uh, ellipticals, and um, have um, most recently gotten what I think is the um, coolest and, and the next uh, generation of kind of exercise equipment, which is we, we got that a Peloton bike, which allows us to actually participate in classes. Even though we're down here in Greensboro, North Carolina, I get to have world-class spinning classes with great instructors, with great music, and I feel like I'm right there in the class, and it drives me to a, le a level of exercise that I wouldn't do on my own. So when I get on my elliptical, I'm not going to force myself like when you're in a class being driven by an instructor. I feel like I'm right there, but I can do it on my own time schedule. You know, that's what's really changed for me in terms of exercise, in addition to things like wearing Garmin watches or my eye, eye watch or uh, things that measure how much exercise I'm getting, um, which also keeps me aware of whether I'm uh, um, getting fit. It fits together to make being healthy a little bit easier. One thing that we've been hearing is that it's your generation that's passing it on to their children, and now people like Jenny are willing to shell out all sorts of money for classes and apparel, and we really care about fitness in a, in a much deeper way than, than maybe we would have. I think it probably is true that, you know, people are going to fitness centers and and being part of classes and just putting it into their kind of it's part of the social environment uh, for for the for your generation. My dad's not the only person who's gotten into the cycling game. People are obsessed with SoulCycle and Flywheel and the other big indoor cycling classes. The Netflix original show, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, did a whole episode about it. That was amazing. I really focused on my me. I didn't think about anything else. Isn't it refreshing? Next time, let's go early so we can get bikes next to each other. Oh, Kimmy, no. You can't ride in the front row with me. Trista Faye will summon you forward when you've earned it. I'll never forget where I was when Trista Faye asked me to join the front row. I was in spin class. I bet you'll be moving up soon. You must have had an amazing trainer down in the bunker. I love that show. Its take on spinning may be a little bit harsh, but it does have some truth to it. We wanted to get a better grasp on the business behind these classes, so we reached out to Peloton's co-founder and chief operating officer, Tom Cortezzi. Tom and the rest of the team founded Peloton in 2012. He said he liked indoor cycling and other parts of the class-based fitness boom, but didn't necessarily have the time or capacity to go to the classes. The team wanted to create a way to get that same kind of experience at home. So for someone like my dad, he can get the feel of a class without having to leave the house. What you guys do is, is pretty unique in the fitness industry, I would say. But do you see the sort of the industry kind of moving more in that direction of, of connected fitness? How, how have you sort of seen the business of fitness change over time? And what are you looking at for the future? Yeah, I mean, for one, I think we all love being together, right? And I don't think you ever replace that, and I don't think we should. That sounds like a dangerous uh, world that I don't need to be a part of. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, the way we've focused on it 
uh, at Peloton is how do you how do you take all of that togetherness and the motivational power of being among a group of uh, having a a real live instructor there to to motivate you and talk to you directly how do you take all of that and bring it to the comfort and convenience uh, of your own home because the the truth of the matter is uh, while we'd all love to be together all of the time or at least some of us, um, we don't all have that opportunity. I've got two young kids at home, and I would rather spend 20 extra minutes a day with them than 20 minutes uh, driving to and from the gym. And so it's amazing that now when I wake up in the morning, I can hop on my bike at, at 6, be done at 6.45, in the shower, ready to, ready to go. They wake up at 7. I can spend an hour with them and then go to work. And that's something that's afforded to me by this intersection of fitness and technology uh, and by my bike. So in terms of like the business factor, I mean, that I, how is that changing and where do you see the business moving forward? Yeah. So, um, the, the business of fitness, I mean, you know, we, we studied, uh, for the last number of years, specifically indoor, uh, machines, right. As, as one part of it. And we've studied at home exercises, the Jane Fonda videos of, uh, yesterday um, <laughs> and sort of how it's sort of evolved or not evolved into kind of streaming streaming media today. Um, I, I, th- I think this idea of, you know, A, uh, approachable workouts, right? Um, um, training always has its place, right? There's always... Um, I've competed in Ironman and, and Marathon, and I understand what it means to train. I don't want to do that all the time. <laughs> um, so so a, approachable, approachable fitness, um, convenient fitness. Um, so, you know, this whole idea that it could be it could be in my home, but I don't always want to do it in my home. I want to I, I, I do sometimes want to be uh, among among real people and, and, and in real settings. So having that that choice and that variety. Right. So that's where you start to see kind of moving away from the, the mega gym to um, the class pass model and the and, and the different boutiques, because now I can kind of go to those different style workouts and uh, be among different style people and different style instructors and I can I can have that variety and then you add in things like Peloton and now I can also have all of that joy and excitement at at home right so mm-hmm. uh, you know variety and approachability I think are 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 important and and influencing where we go as a as a fitness I guess in terms of Peloton specifically, what is your ultimate growth strategy? I mean, are you guys hoping to, I mean, we, we know SoulCycle has talked about an IPO, the, you know, the market's not great, but is that something you could see in the future? I mean, what's in the works for, for Peloton, the business? So for, for one, we don't think of ourselves as a cycling company. Um, we do think of ourselves as a, a wellness company, a, a fitness company generally. Um, and we are excited to continue to take this whole concept of connected fitness in the convenience of your home and, and bring it into uh, more areas, right? And so um, immediately what you're starting to see at Peloton, um, we have a series that we call Beyond the Ride, and we're going to begin to expand upon that over time. Beyond the Ride, now you can um, hop off your bike, you can use our uh, iPad app, or or you know turn the screen on your on your bike and take a a, a Pilates class or or a high intensity interval training class, do some calisthenics, all sorts of things that can kind of complement the the bike itself, but also give you kind of this one stop access to the best fitness instructors anytime you want um, from the convenience of your own home. Peloton 
Peloton is trying to strike the balance between community and convenience in fitness. And they're not the only people trying to make being fit easy. It's not just workout classes and gyms. Right. I mean, beyond exercise, it's really a whole lifestyle. It's about the clothes we put on our bodies and the food and drinks we put in our bodies. In the clothing world, they're calling it the athleisure boom. So that's any kind of athletic clothing and stuff that you would wear to work out or just wear to go get coffee. That market, it's $44 billion in the U.S., according to an estimate by the research firm MPD Group. Activewear sales are booming. I mean, they increased 16% in 2015 from the year before, compared to only a 2% gain in the overall apparel market. And actually, if you stripped out athletic apparel sales from 2015, apparel sales actually declined by 2%. If you think about it in the broadest sense, I mean, you're talking about trillions of dollars. I mean, one wow. one estimate I came up with, you know, based on some of the bankers that I talked to or that I got from a banker that I talked to was upwards of $3 trillion. You know, and that's really factoring in everything. That's spending money on gyms, spending money on clothes, spending money on food, and travel and, and lots of lots of different things. You, when you think about the gym industry, the fitness center sort of gym industry, eighty plus billion dollars. You know, athleisure alone, which I know you guys have have written and talked about before. You know, that's forty forty five uh, billion dollars based on some of the latest research I've seen. So I mean, you're talking about meaningful amounts of money. And and when you get into the idea of food and and uh, and travel and and things like that, it's a little harder to sort of unpack and, and delineate what is really tied to this. But what we see is people willing to spend more money for organic, willing to spend more money even more broadly on experiences, which I think plays a lot into into the broader trend. Fitness is a lifestyle, but it's not one that everybody can participate in equally. We asked Jason Kelly about the socioeconomic breakdown in this trend. One of the things that I really wrestled with as I was researching was, how is this happening? How is this trend, which I identify, happening at the same time that we have record obesity? Right. right? So, mm-hmm. so it's like, how do you square that? And and so one of the sociologists I talked to laid out a very interesting theory, which is that part of it is driven by the income divide. Mm. And Briefly, you know, historically, when when you look back, the affluent always find a way to define themselves against the, you know, quote unquote, lower classes. And so when the working class is working outside, the upper class makes sure that they are pale skinned and soft hands. You know, when food is scarce, the upper class is, you know, favors being fat because it shows that they have access to as much food as they want. And so we are at a time now where the affluent sort of upper class you know, defines themselves as fit and strong and lean because it shows I have the money to spend on my body and the time. And so there is this kind of interesting, almost dichotomy there, which goes back to how does this sort of play through the the rest of uh, the culture and, and society? And part of it is going to – the costs are going to have to come down, right? I mean, they, in the sense that soul cycle for the average person is prohibitive, prohibitive cost-wise, like – People can't generally afford to spend $40 to go right. spend for 45 minutes. Um, 
several times a week. <laughs> that's, that's out of reach for, for yeah. many people. But even um, I'm thinking like about the apparel trends, right? So athletic apparel is growing at a much faster rate than, than general apparel, those sales. Um, but it, it is kind of a, a status thing, right? Like, oh, I, I can afford to wear Lululemon or even Nike. Um, and while everyone's sort of coming out with their own athletic apparel and people are wearing it for non-athletic pursuits, it does seem to be uh, sort of something that's reserved for higher class or it's a status symbol. Yeah, absolutely. And those things over time, you know, do tend to, quote unquote, trickle down. And, you know, you will have lower cost providers who who come in to a certain extent, you know, and then the question, just playing that out even further, then the question becomes, okay, so once everybody has the equivalent of Lululemon pants, you know, What's next? how then do the, the sort of upper classes, quote unquote, differentiate themselves? In some ways, there are only so many ways to work out, you know, I mean, you know, without getting too weird. And, you know, one of the one of the areas of innovation I see a lot right now, as as I talk to more and more people, is as much around the mind as the body. And I do think that when you think about meditation studios like Unplug here in New York and Los Angeles, you know, there is this sense that people understand better how to take care of their bodies. They may be spending or may need to spend more time thinking about their minds as well. I mean, you know, we're, we live in anxious times. I think that is a, that's a fair statement that we can all agree with. So, you know, this notion of people finding ways to essentially cope, to feel better, um, I think we'll continue to find new and different ways. And there's just a lot of money flowing toward this as well. To get some more perspective on how the business of mindfulness fits into the rest of this boom, we spoke with Rohan Gunatalika, founder and director of Budify, a mindfulness app. So I personally have been into meditation and mindfulness since my last year at college, so 12, 13 years. And what I found was that as mindfulness was becoming more popular, my friends would sort of say to me, oh, I'm really interested in this mindfulness thing, but... And the buts were always the same, which were, I don't have time and it's too hippie. Given I had not only a background in meditation, but also working in technology and design, I realized that those, those, that those two things of uh, the time issue and the hippie issue were not intrinsic to meditation, that they were design challenges. So I basically decided to make something to solve my friend's problems. And out of that came Buddhify. Budify is an app that looks to infuse mindfulness into everyday activities. For example, there are guided meditations for taking a work break, eating, and even being online. I guess go back five years, and in that time, we've seen a real, real sort of popularity of using products for physical health. So apps to track your steps or your uh, workout regime or your running routes or your nutrition. These are all really popular categories of product, but they're very much focused on the body and exercise and diet as well. And then the, this growth, the sort of the growth of mindfulness apps is sort of the next phase of that. The idea of being able to use your phone as part of your well-being regime, I guess. Uh, we started with the physical stuff, but now 
we're starting to see much more, uh, many more products around happiness, well-being, uh, whatever sort of different dimension people take. And, and I think uh, a really nice, elegant uh, irony, really, and maybe around mindfulness apps is that we're using the technologies that for a lot of people uh, find stressful in itself. We're sort of um, turning that on its head and using these technology, technologies for positive uh, well-being rather than the other thing. What is the current demographic that's you know normally focused on? The main, I guess, the main demographic is that a uh, English-speaking, because if you think most of the products are in English, so that um, already limits your global audience. Um, the most uh, most products sort of work on a sort of uh, subscription model, so um, that necessarily goes to someone who can afford X dollars a month. Budify itself is just a simple five dollar one-off uh, purchase. Because um, I'm not a particular big fan of subscription as a as a business model, um, but given that su subscription is so popular, uh, in a way that sort of financially excludes a lot of people as well, which is a real shame. Um, and also, the aesthetic and um, language and the, the kind of voices you find in products tend to aim at a sort of uh, middle class English speaking uh, demographic, um, which makes a lot of sense from a business perspective because that's where it's easier to get revenue, but it's also that's also uh, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot more people that could get the benefits from mindfulness as well than than just that. So I think that's where the opportunity is. But I'm confident that 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 will change and grow as um, the market matures and the audience becomes more uh, open to mindfulness as a thing. With your future products, do you plan to continue that kind of like flat fee model? Uh, app economics is a is is a strange thing. I remember seeing a stat that maybe only three to five percent of the app store revenues in the U.S. come from just a just a paid app. Um, so Budify is very much in the minority in that sense uh, because most things are free within app purchase or free with subscription. But I feel there's a real I think I still believe there's a real uh, value in just the, the very simple transaction of here's a product. It costs this much. You don't have. It won't trick you into spending any more money onto it, and you get this much value from it. There's a real elegance and simplicity to that, which I think a lot of. Um, but I think there's a whole different. Our, our future products will uh, all have slightly different uh, revenue models depending on uh, what's appropriate. I'm as much motivated by accessibility and growing the audience as I am as I'm in uh, being because we are we are commercially successful. But we're, self, we're a self-funded company, so we're not answering to uh, venture capitalists who are demanding a sort of 50 times return on their investment. So we're, we're, a, we're a lot more flexible about how generous we can be to our users, and people have uh, thankfully responded to that. There's a growing concern that our, our sort of most popular apps and messaging technologies are damaging our attention span and concentration and so on. Uh, and I think there's a real opportunity to take for, the, for those of us who've learned a lot about what really works with regards to mindfulness technology, to take what we've learned and uh, start to embed some of those ideas and practices into literally every, every bit of software could become potentially a mindfulness app uh, in a very light touch way. And that's where real sort of uh, real scale will happen. And that's sort of what I'm excited about as well is that the, the hope that the growth of mindfulness apps will influence the technology sector as a whole.
clearly people are putting a lot of money and effort into just being healthier. But with all of this activity, are we in a fitness bubble? The sort of modality may change and fashion may change, but I think the mega trend is intact. And, and that's in part because I don't think that if we were sitting here 10 years from now, we would say, you know, it's great smoking. You know, like, I mean, or, or, you know, I'm really psyched because I have heart disease. I think the broader trend toward healthier living is has sort of sunk in. I think people ultimately tend to do things that make them feel good. I think loyalty is going to be extremely important. And I think maintaining the both the brand and the quality of experience is probably one of the biggest challenges for these boutiques um, in order to be a robust, successful company. And certainly as a public company, you have to demonstrate growth, right? And so the question that looms out there for any company that expands in any sort of way is, can the experience, can you sort of continue to create the community that you're talking about around a certain brand. And that comes down to, are you hiring the right people? Are you training your instructors? Are you keeping your instructors? Are you paying them? And like all those different things, they're like real grown up business questions and are much beyond sort of people think it's awesome and all my friends go. And so I do think that's one of the, one of the big challenges, especially as companies go public. Many of the people that we spoke to have bet their careers on the continuation of the fitness trend. And it makes sense. The reasons for the boom that Jason talked about aren't going away. People are living longer, women athletes are still looking to stay in shape after high school or college sports are over, and people are always looking to be part of some kind of community. It's also a status symbol. I mean, celebrities and CEOs are touting their fitness regimes, and private equity firms have placed major bets on industry players. But still, our country's facing a serious health crisis with obesity. So will the fitness-centric lifestyle trickle down, for lack of a better term, to people who can't afford current prices? I think a lot of businesses are hoping so and betting so, but only time will tell. That's it for this week's episode of Material World. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Elsie Rupp. And you can find me at Jenny M. Kaplan. If you like the show... Check it out on Bloomberg.com, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks. Whether it be mom or dad or daughter who buys the bike, um, eventually uh, they're all riding.